Good morning. Welcome to the online service for Center Presbyterian Church. We're so happy that you have joined us today. We especially want to say welcome to anybody who has, uh, as a visitor, who stumbled upon this stream today. Today we're going to be talking about preparing our hearts for the Lord, about doing spiritual inspection of our lives uh, to see where our hearts uh, really are. The call to worship comes from Psalm 86, and it is a prayer of David asking God that he would unite our hearts. Our hearts are often uh, divided, chasing after a lot of different things. Um, and he asks that his heart would be united in the, the fear and worship of the Lord. And so I want to encourage you to join with me um, at, in hearing this call to worship. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations have made, you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. This morning as we continue in our series on, on Nehemiah, we're turning to the second chapter. And I want to invite you, if you would stand with me as we read together the Word of God. And we enjoy that word to us this morning. Beginning with chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the king of heaven and I answered the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king said to the queen sitting beside him, ask me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. 
And because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. And when Sanballat and Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed and someone had, that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone that or what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounds. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or where I was going or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruin. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began his good work. But when Sanballat and Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is the word of God. Pray with me, won't you? Father, as we look at the life of a man who desired to follow you, we think about our lives as we endeavor to follow Christ. And it is for that reason we have great hope in your word. For your word is life, and in it we come to know those things that will become obstacles if we endeavor to be disciples of Jesus. And so now we ask that you would teach us from your word, begin to apply it in such measure that we would walk in the joy of our salvation and our faith would be built. We pray and we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, I, I'm not someone who enjoys obstacles. There is a TV program where uh, people compete with one another as they go across an obstacle course. 
And in that obstacle course, they have to jump from one impossible place to another and use their physical prowess and their agility in order to be able to complete, which many times, probably 99% of the people never do. But there is always one person who comes who does some feats of acrobats or acrobatic uh, physical prowess that truly is amazing to see how anyone could possibly get through this course. That's sometimes how I feel as a disciple of Jesus Christ when Christ says to me, come and follow me. I feel like some of those people who, who endeavor to follow Christ and when the obstacles come, they seem so large and overwhelming, looming my destruction that, that I wilt or falter or in my own strength and power begin to fail. Many times I think that's really the summation of most people who endeavor to be Christians is they really try hard to be good people. They really try hard to overcome obstacles. And in that endeavor this morning, as we are looking to this particular passage in second chapter of Nehemiah, we begin to realize that, that we are not alone in that facing of obstacles of faith, that we're not on our own, that there are other people like us who have experienced uh, both the height of our salvation and the despair of our own sinful tendencies and struggles and even those who come against us. And so when you and I begin to read this chapter of chapter two, it, it starts out with such promise and it ends with such challenge. And that is really where I wanna go in talking and sharing with you the insights that God has given me as I've read this chapter knowing that there may be further insights that God will give you as you reflect upon your own walk and your own desire to follow Christ, the obstacles you face. But there are four things that I find in the passage that are part of what Nehemiah's calling means as he endeavors to be faithful to God in his day that you and I face in our day as we try to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. The first is you notice in chapter two, verses one through eight, that he is in a position in the court of a foreign king who is not of his own people. This king, Artaxerxes, is a king who is really responsible for the demise of not only his people, but his city and his country that they are a conquered people. They are conquered not just because of the might of this king, but also because of the sins of their own lives where they had turned away from the living Lord. The Lord had told them that the day that you go into the land and you forget who I am and you no longer worship me and honor me, I will not withhold your enemies and they will come and consume you. This is what God told them all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. And now generations later, Nehemiah is the son of exiles who were captive and taken captive by foreign nations because God was bringing judgment upon them for their sins. We saw how in chapter one, he began to acknowledge that destitute feeling that they had looking back upon their past and remembering how God had kept his promise and they were now suffering exiles from their home. We found out in the book of Ezra that 
God was gracious enough that he gave not only the promise that they would be taken out of the land if they turned from him, but if that happened or when that happened, if the people of God would turn back to the living Lord and repent of their sins, he would restore them to the land. And so hearing reports from his brothers as to how that resettlement was happening and what progress was being made in the rebuilding of the temple of God, the report he received was not wonderful news. It was depressing news because the people were in great distress and living under great shame. And yet in chapter two, we hear that in praying for many days and fasting and crying out to God, all that Nehemiah could think about was, would God be gracious? to act where he could have no power to act in himself. And it is in his position as the cupbearer to the king that God began to use Nehemiah where he was in the fashion of his influence upon the king to begin to fulfill God's promise of restoration. Well, what does that have to do with you? Well, God has placed you in certain places for his purposes and his purpose is to build his kingdom. As ambassadors of Jesus Christ, as one who believes in Jesus Christ, whether it's in your workplace or your neighborhood or your home, God has positioned you just like he positioned Nehemiah for the furtherance of his kingdom. The most amazing thing about this cupbearer for the king is the cupbearer was, was someone who was deeply trusted by the king, not because he was necessarily a trustworthy person, but the cupbearer had the job of eating and drinking everything before it touched the lips of the king. So if anyone wanted to poison the king, which was the method by which many rulers took the thrones of nations, they would simply get rid of the present reigning monarch by poisoning his food or, or filling his wine goblet with with something that would alleviate his life and take him from the king or the throne itself. When Nehemiah, as a cupbearer, comes and does his duties before the king, he cannot help but still mourn and grieve what has happened to his people. And in those moments, God uses that mourning and that grief of Nehemiah to open a door that only God could open. For on that day, the king, noticing his desires to follow the living God, was used by the very God who made those desires in Nehemiah's heart. Notice that Nehemiah was in distress. Now you would say, well, I'm not a cupbearer. No, you're not. But you are a Christ follower. And you are in a position where God wants to use you. That position could be good or it could be bad. It was good that Nehemiah could be so close to the king. It was bad because his life could be taken from him at any moment. And so he lived day by day recognizing that his life was out of his control. Though he was in a position of great influence, he had no control over the sun or the moon or the stars or the very breath of his body. 
He was in the hands of the living God. So were you. And so his position was not the cupbearer of the king. His position was determined by being a believer in God. So was yours. The second obstacle that he faced was not only overcoming the temptation of thinking his position gave him a right or the prestige to do things for God, that it allowed him to trust in God to do things through him. The second obstacle he had to overcome was the obstacle we find in dealing with others. In verse 9, you hear these names of these strange individuals. So he, he took letters that he received from the king to these governors who ruled in what was called the land of the trans-Euphrates, which would be the land that would be further west from Babylon, between the promised land and the Babylon king empire itself. And, and in that land, these governors stood as basic rulers who determined who would pass through those lands on the way to Judah. They had great power because they were servants of the king. And in that, in that serving of the king, they were the ones who governed these particular places. They had the word of life and death by the authority of the king. These three, Sanballat, Horonite, and Tobiah, these Amorite kingdoms, and these Amorite kings were possibly people who were, who were looking to feather their own cap in light of what were the present day's politics of the day. They were out to make sure that Artaxerxes continued his reign because they benefited from it. And when this man named Nehemiah who is a Israelite decides to return to a fallen kingdom that has been shamed, they become alarmed. And in that alarm, they recognize that not only are they in the path of this person's progress, they are worried that his progress will undermine their own power. And so the second obstacle Nehemiah faced was the objection of those who had the power to stop him, who had no benefit in seeing God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. These were men who were building their own kingdom, not the kingdom of God. And in light of that, Nehemiah had to deal with them in such a way that they could understand that they had no authority. And he had to resist the temptation to cower at their threats. So many times as a believer in Christ, you and I are called to stand for Christ in our day, to speak the truth of God, and most importantly, we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. In fact, Paul writes in the book letter to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God given under men and women whereby we must be saved. In other words, that forgiveness of sins and the ability to walk with God come not from our own endeavor to live good lives. It comes from the message that Christ gave himself on the cross for you, that he paid the penalty for our sins in such ways that now we are claimed by God to be not only his children, but ambassadors to a lost world that is still separated from God by their sins. And so in the same way that Nehemiah had the obstacle of those who would come against us, 
we are not so foolish to believe that there won't be people who will stand against us as believers in our day because they see us as a threat to their lives, to their choices, to the way they live. And it's for that reason that Jesus said we are to pray for our enemies. This is his command. The third obstacle was the obstacle that comes from guilt and shame. Beginning in chapter 11, you hear these words. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out at night during the night with a few men and I, I had told no one or anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there were no mounts with me except the one I was riding. And then by night, he went on to verse 13 and says, he surveyed the entire city, not just the city walls, the entire city, the people who lived in and outside the walls as well as the walls themselves. And when he saw the circumstances of the city, it must have grieved his heart because what he was looking at were the consequences of the sin of his people. So many times we are afraid to serve God because of the shame of our past. So many times we feel hindered from being used by God because of something we did in the past that we know dishonored the name of Christ. And instead of believing God that he forgives us of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, we become paralyzed with the guilt of the shame that is still within our hearts. And that obstacle that we are facing and Nehemiah faced is that obstacle where we, we are tempted not to believe the word of God. Have you ever really thought about the fact that when you come to God and ask him to forgive you that he does and has? And now you are free to walk before him. One of the important obstacles that Nehemiah had to overcome as he looked at the destruction that had come through choices that were far from the living God was not being paralyzed by those consequences so that he could be free to rebuild and begin to practice faithfulness to God. The final obstacle that he faced was one that is common to all of us and especially in this, this season of pandemic where we are just so weary and tired and fearful and is the object, the, the obstacle of, of discouragement. Please notice in chapter two, verse 16, Nehemiah finds something that maybe he didn't expect, maybe he did. He summarizes that after visiting the city and surveying the damage and praying and thinking about how God might restore them as a people, he says the officials did not know where he had gone in that examination of the city or what he was doing because he had not said anything to anyone, to the Jews, to the priests, to the nobles, to the officials. He didn't have counsel with anyone 
as to what they would be doing in order to restore their life before God. Well, why didn't he call a committee meeting? Why didn't he gather people together and they have some kind of conference or counseling session together? Well, the obvious answer is that they, they would have only shared discouragement. And that's one of the traps of being discouraged is we can't see the hope. We can't dwell on the good. And so in that discouragement of our sins, we become so vexed and fixed upon our failure that we forget that God has now freed us for success. Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, God has given us everything we need to love him today. You may have failed that endeavor in the days past, but that doesn't hinder you today in succeeding in loving God. And so when he goes on and he talks about what he saw in Jerusalem, he then gathered those people together and acknowledged the obvious. And that is, he says, you see the trouble we're in. It wasn't like he was giving blind hope or false hope. He was acknowledging the reality of where they were. Yes, it was discouraging seeing their, wheel, their walls torn down. Yes, it was discouraging dealing with the shame of their past and the ways in which they had failed God. Yes, it was discouraging, but it was not their lot to stay in because God was at work. You see, he goes on to say to them, I also told them, verse 18, of my God, the hand of my God was upon me and what the king has said. There's the hope. There, there is your hope. The hand of your God is upon you. The glory of God in Christ enshrines you. And therefore, you, you do not have to live with the discouragement of the past. You are now free walk in the confidence of a God who is forgiven and cleansed and redeemed you. And Nehemiah says to them, let us start rebuilding. Even then, in the midst of that, there would be those who would try to discourage them just like you will have people who will try to discourage you in following Christ. In verse 19, Sambalat and Horonite and Tobiah and another governor named Geshem the Arab heard how these shame-filled failures were believing in God to restore them. And they ridiculed them. When they heard of what Nehemiah was doing and how the people were rallied to believe in God and trust in God and follow God, they began to cry out, what is this you're doing? Are you gonna rebel against the king? Those were fighting words. 
total distortion of what was really transpiring, a misrepresentation of what God was doing, a total attempt to shame them back into that cavern, that cave of depression. And Nehemiah's response was, the God of heaven will give us success. Do you know that that is your hope today? It's not that you're able to live for Christ or follow him faithfully or somehow accomplish great things for God. It's that you trust in him and in him is your success. This is why Jesus said in so many ways and the gospel of John, I am the gate, I'm the good shepherd, I am the bread of life. No one can live apart from me that the strength and the life of the Christian is not tied to our performance, it's tied to the God who works through us and our success is not measured by what we are able to do for God. It is how we abide in him. And through that abiding, he uses us to further his kingdom. I dare say it's really quite amazing. I, I never really understood this until when I was in college, I had a roommate who, who was not a Christian and he looked at me in curious ways. And, and as we went through the semester, he began to ask me questions about Christianity. And I was really kind of, I was afraid to say anything because I didn't want to offend him or I didn't want to say things the wrong way. And I was more worried about my, my abilities than God's faithfulness. And so as I told him more and more about what I was learning in the Bible as I was reading it every night before we went to bed, I found him asking me more and more questions. What are you reading? What does that say? What does that mean? And slowly, but almost imperceptibly, God was at work in his life simply because I was faithful to tell him what God was teaching me. That summer, I will never forget, after school had been dismissed and we were both homes with our families, he called me on the phone and said, I have to tell you something. And I said, what is it? He said, I have given my life to Jesus Christ. I said, you did what? And as I heard him talk about his testimony, I began to realize I had never shared Christ with him. I had never shared the gospel with him, but then suddenly it began to dawn on me, yes, I did. I had done it the whole times when he had asked questions. I had just calmly and quietly explained what it was that God was doing in Jesus Christ for me. And another person was coming into the kingdom. I don't know about you, the obstacles you face this morning, but I, don't know, I do know this, that whatever obstacle you face, whether you don't think you have the ability to be faithful, or you worry about the ability to tell others of Christ, or you have others who are who are really kind of trying to trip you up or lead you down different paths, or your, your guilt and your shame over the past seems to never get off your back. It rides you constantly. That overwhelming final discouragement that comes in trying to be holy when you're not. Whatever obstacles you face, whatever it is that you face in your life is an obstacle to walking with Christ. Just like Nehemiah, 
walking with Christ is the path of success. You see, that's the word Nehemiah had. The God of heaven will give me success. Let us pray. Our gracious Father and our God, as we look to you, we have no power in and of ourselves to much less wash away our sins as well as save ourselves from your judgment. And yet you are at work in our lives this morning that we might be called faithful and just and righteous. We're so grateful for promises in the scripture that says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so as we take this time to examine our lives and to think about what barriers we face to being Christians, we humbly come to you, Lord Jesus, acknowledging our obstacles and asking, O oh Lord of heaven, we trust in you for our success. Not in ourselves, not in our friends, but in you. Hear us, we pray, we ask humbly in the name of Christ our Lord. And the people of God said together, Amen.